Welcome to the Seller Roundtable e-commerce coaching and business strategies with Andy Arnott and Amy Wees. Well, I am Dan Harris and I'm a lawyer with Harris Bricken. I'm also an editor of the China Law blog and much of my work consists of helping to protect American and European companies IP when they go overseas and in particular protecting them from having their IP stolen or appropriated or whatever you want to call it from China, which is very common these days because so many companies manufacture their products in China without even realizing fully what they're putting at risk by doing that. So if you could um, go to the next slide, I'll start my talk. Okay, so um, big companies in China want to steal your IP. Small companies in China want to steal your IP. Medium-sized companies in China want to steal your IP. Government-owned companies in China want to steal your IP. Privately held companies in China want to steal your IP. And despite what far too many people believe, that company in China whose owner invites you to his or her daughter's or son's wedding, that company also wants to steal your IP. Now, presumably, American companies want to steal your IP as well, but the difference is our laws, our enforcement, our system is better set up to prevent that. China's is getting better. It's definitely still not there yet. So what do you need to do to prevent your IP from being stolen from China? Let's pretend you're going over there to have your widget made that you want to sell online. What should you be looking at? Well, there are three keys. Structural protection, having a good contract, and having good registration. And if you could turn to the next screen, I'll start dealing with each of these in turn. Okay, so what do I mean by structural protection? <clears throat> what I mean is those things that you should be doing, not necessarily your lawyer. How are you going to structure what you are doing with China? Well, the first thing you should do is make sure you're dealing with a good company in China. Probably 95% of the time when American or European companies have problems with their Chinese companies, it is because their Chinese company um, was not the company they should have chosen. Um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, okay. Was not the company they should have chosen for um, their manufacturer. If you choose a good Chinese company, that Chinese company puts a lot at risk by stealing your intellectual property. In fact, a lot of times American companies will sign a contract or seek to do business with someone in China that doesn't even really have a company. It's completely fake. So how, how can you get a, around that sort of problem? Number one, do your due diligence. The extent of your due diligence is going to vary. If you're gonna be buying a million dollars worth of product every month, your due diligence should be more than if you're just buying $2,000 worth of sunglasses a month, but even the person buying just $2,000 worth of sunglasses should do various things to make sure that the first $2,000 doesn't disappear. One of the things you can do is just run a Google search on that company because a lot of times you'll find something that will steer you away from them. And it's amazing to me how often people don't even do that. One of the other things you can do is confirm their existence. 
Um, there are companies that do that, lawyers that do that. All they really do is go to the Chinese corporate website to make sure that the company exists. The problem is you have to do that in Chinese. But um, you don't have to be a lawyer to do that. And so if you know someone who can read Chinese, So if you know someone who can read Chinese, um, they can do that. The other thing you can do that's very important is to just go there, check out the factory. You may not be an expert in how a widget is made, even though you're selling a widget, but you can judge, is the factory clean? Are there people working there? Are things um, actually coming out um, to be boxed, to be shipped. Uh, there are all sorts of things that just going there will tell you. Going there will also change how you are perceived by your Chinese supplier. If you don't go there, you're perceived as just somebody who sends emails. If you go there, you're perceived as a human being. Yeah. Dan, um, if I can jump in for a quick moment. Yes. Because I'm I'm a hundred percent in agreement here. Um, first, on the going there is so important because if you're going there, you're now a person that they have to deal with, not just uh, an email, not just a ding on the computer. And the other thing is, over the years, two times I've been in situations where I have sat in offices and I've been told, "Yes, we are the factory," when in fact they are not the factory. There are no machines. There is nothing. And, and they swear to you that they're the factory. Uh, and that's happened to me twice. I've also had one person who tells me, told me that they are the factory when in fact, they were just, they just had an arrangement with the factory. And the factory allowed them to come in and they were basically an independent salesman who had an arrangement with the factory to, to come in and pretend that they're from the factory and set up a, uh, a deal and get a percentage from that and walk back out again. So it, it is common. It's incredibly common. In fact, just today, I was telling a client why, I was explaining to a client why they should come back to us for their subsequent agreements, even if they're going to be exactly the same. And I said that one of the things we do when we draft any agreement is to get on the corporate registry in China to confirm the existence of the company, but also to confirm that that company is actually a manufacturer because the corporate registry will tell you what they're licensed to do. And about one out of every 10 times, they're not a manufacturer, they're just a middle person. And the reason that can be, there are a lot of reasons that can be deadly. One is that that middle person's probably getting about a 40 to 50% markup. Uh, they're getting a 40 to 50% cut of whatever you're sending over there. It also means that if you enter into a contract with that middle person saying that they're not going to make your widget and sell it to everybody else in the world, you don't have that contract with the manufacturer and the manufacturer can go off and do that and very justifiably say, I didn't even know we weren't supposed to do that. And that sort of thing also happens all the time. So yes, it's very important to, to go there, see what's going on. And if you're doing a million dollars, send somebody who speaks Chinese to talk to people in the neighborhood about the factory because they can learn things. Like for instance, that the employees haven't been paid for three months. Do you really want to be sending a million dollars to a company that doesn't even have enough money to pay its employees? I wouldn't think so because that's the company that's just going to keep your million dollars. And that sort of thing happens a lot also. Yeah, I've had, I've had same sort of thing happens in the United States. <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. Okay, the next screen, please. Okay, here's another reason to go there. Um, I got this picture off the internet. I have a client who does sourcing for the automobile industry. I stole this idea from him. 
he was able to use real pictures. This is what your factory is going to look like on the website. And if you could go to the next screen, I'll show you what it might look like if you go there. And there you have it. Um, you don't know what you're dealing with until you go there or have someone you really trust go there. And if it's not going to be you, there are um, quality control agencies that are very reliable who can go check out your factory for you for anywhere from 200 to $500, depending where it is and depending what you want them to do. They can check out your factory and they can come back and they say, yeah, there is a factory there. They're making shampoo, not um, iPhone, not cell phones. Um, if you could turn to the next screen, please. Okay, so when doing your due diligence, um, there are certain rules. Number one, distrust everything the company gives you. We've seen fake everything, fake degrees, fake licenses, fake certifications. Uh, if, if it comes from the company, you've got to look at it skeptically. Look around, ask around when you're there, look around. Go into rooms that you think they don't want you to go into because then you might find that they're not really making shampoo. They just bought 100 bottles of shampoo and you go in there and you find out that they're making um, cell phone chargers. Scrutinize the paper. Whatever you've been given, look at it closely because a lot of times they make a lot of mistakes. Like, for instance, um, they might say that they're in a particular city and then they'll misspell it. Uh, there are a lot of scams out there that are being perpetrated against people who are buying things over the internet, especially commercial quantities. And a lot of those scams are not even being propagated by people in China. They're being propagated by people in other countries. And you think you're dealing with someone in China. You might be dealing with someone in Costa Rica. You might be dealing with someone in Nigeria. You don't know where they are. And a lot of times when you look at what they're sending you, you can find uh, proof that they are not who they say they are. Look at the little things. Is the phone number that they're giving you, is that really in China? Uh, if it's not, why not? Probably because they're not in China. Certain things you can, lo you can um, look at, and if you really look carefully and do your research that will cost you nothing, you can find out that you're dealing with a scammer. Um, and then this is where I got a little bit zen. Delegate certain things. Do not delegate other things. Yes, your lawyer is who you want to draft the contract, but your lawyer is not who you want to send over to look at a factory. Um, there are certain things you need to trust yourself on. There are certain things you need an expert on. If you're going to be making something as complicated as a cell phone and you're not an engineer, bring on an engineer. Okay, I just got a question. Can we not trust the gold suppliers? You absolutely cannot trust the gold suppliers on Alibaba. Um, Alibaba is a big, big company. Alibaba knows how to write contracts that essentially make it so that they don't have to pay out when there are problems. Gold suppliers, there've been, there's a long history of companies bribing um, people at Alibaba to be listed as gold suppliers. Um, think about it this way. The more gold suppliers there are on Alibaba, the more Alibaba makes. And read that contract that you have signed with Alibaba. Take it to a lawyer, ask that lawyer if, you, if they think you will have a good case if something goes wrong. Because what I can tell you is that in my career, I've probably gotten 25 people who have had problems with Alibaba gold suppliers and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And if you added up hundreds of thousands of dollars for 
some of them individually. Probably it equals millions of dollars total. And if I added up what they ended up getting back from Alibaba, I would guess it's less than $100,000. And in every instance, when they've asked us whether they thought it made sense to pay us to pursue Alibaba, we have said no. I am not a fan of the Alibaba contracts because they are incredibly slanted, not surprisingly, towards Alibaba. So gold, I mean, I guess it's better than a silver supplier. I don't know if they have silver suppliers, but it's, you're still taking a big risk. And Dan, if I can jump in here for a second on that same question, I think uh, everyone in this group or anyone that's going to be watching this has seen postings within Facebook groups for Amazon where people are looking to purchase Amazon seller accounts that have been open since 2016 or earlier, uh, purchase Amazon accounts that have high ratings, uh, well, uh, high rated accounts and good feedback and so on. And oftentimes the people who are looking to purchase the accounts and then sell on them uh, are people from China or, or different parts of the world. And the reason they're doing it is because they're looking to purchase that reputation. Everyone knows that. And yet somehow people turn blind when they're looking at Alibaba or pretending that the exact same thing is not going on. And it is going on in Alibaba. People are purchasing accounts. I know people who are in their early 20s who supposedly own factories that have been around for 25 years. It's just not true. They purchase it just like they do on Amazon accounts. Right. Another thing that can also happen, and we've seen it happen with our clients, they'll be working with a factory for seven, eight years, and they really like that factory because they get along really well with the owner and they trust the owner. And then the owner sells or the owner passes the factory down to his, son, his or her son or daughter, and it becomes like a new factory, and it's terrible all of a sudden. And that same sort of thing can happen with Alibaba as well. Uh, Dan, would you say, you know, I found my first supplier on Alibaba, and um, the reason I chose them is because they were very good at communicating, and I felt... Uh, that everything they did was very straightforward. They sent me samples, everything. They sent me lots of pictures. They brought up things that I should know as a new seller that I didn't even think about, right? Um, and, and they just did a really great job of communicating with me. And I'm still with them today, two years later, um, and have made many orders. Um, so would you say that if you are kind of, there's a lot of people that are forced, and especially in my audience that's going to be seeing this video, there's a lot of people that, that can't go to China yet, right? They're, they wanna go, but they're not there yet, and they do have to rely on things like Alibaba. Do you have any advice for them finding a good supplier? And um, I mean, this is really great advice. Just really distrust all company info, really ask around, make sure that you're, you're doing your due diligence. Are there any more pieces of advice on that front if you do have to kind of go online? Yes, um, you can ask the factory to give you names of others who buy from them. Some factories will do that, most won't. I don't necessarily blame those that won't um, because they may just be protecting the privacy of their own customers, which is a good thing. But if they give you the names, call them. And again, go online to see who else is doing buying from them and you can even call them. Um, in terms of good communicators, I don't think that's necessarily a good indicator because a lot of people who deal with China a lot would say that the best factories tend to be the ones that are not quite so slick. And a lot of times the person you're talking to is just somebody they've paid a little bit of money to, to communicate in English and say whatever. Um, but you did say something which I think could be a good indicator, which is if they tell you something that you didn't know that tells you they know what they're doing in terms of your product or making your product, because that is a lot tougher to fake. Yes, then that is what actually drew me to them was they were bringing up things like, hey, you have to put made in China on this product or it will get held up at customs. And they clearly had experience 
um, you know, sending products to the United States and working with, with other, um, with, with other retailers. So I've, I felt very comfortable in that aspect because I was new and because I was very open with them and I was asking a lot of questions and they knew the answers. And I, of course, then I went and did my due diligence and said, Hey, is that, is that your experience? Is that the right answer? And yeah, yeah, that's absolutely the right answer. So for me, I, I feel like I kind of got lucky there, but, uh, I've heard so many bad stories that, uh, of that not happening. Yeah. Well, there, there are, there are something good. there that makes me that, would have tipped me off to the fact that they're a good company. And that's that they said, you need to put made in China on there. Because what sometimes happens in reverse is the Chinese company will encourage you to do something that isn't legal or isn't right. And you sort of know it, but you do it anyway. And an example that I used to always write about around Christmas time is these companies that make it seem like they're selling um, Apple iPhones out the side door of the factory and they're going to sell them to you for $200. And then people buy $60,000 worth planning to sell them online. And then, of course, if they get anything at all, they're not iPhones because no one's selling new iPhones for $200. And yet they think they've been ripped off. But I tell them, look, what made you think that somebody could sell new iPhones for $200? And they don't ever say flat out say, well, I thought they were stealing them from the factory. They go, I thought it was China. And I go, well, but it's Apple. But they did think that they were stealing them from the factory. And they should have known better. Because anyone who's basically telling you that they're stealing iPhones is not somebody you should trust. And anyone who tells you to say that um, the $80 product you're importing, that you should list it at customs as having paid $40, that's not somebody you want to do business with. Because if they're telling you to lie to U.S. Customs, they're probably lying to you. So yeah. be wary of that. And Dan, I'm going to jump on that last because that bothers me sometimes when I hear it. But there are U.S. people teaching uh, Amazon sellers who go on YouTube and tell them to undervalue and so on. And so that that little bit of due diligence is not just a factory, but sometimes it's the person that's selling courses to you to learn how to do this is just as unethical and questionable. Well, and all I'll say to everyone there is, do you really want to risk going to jail uh, to save a couple dollars on your import duties? I don't think so. Because countries do put people in jail for that, including the United States. It's not worth it. And any course that tells people to do that, you should ask for your money back because that is terrible, terrible advice. I mean, it's, it, it's scary. Very scary. I didn't. I didn't mean to take this off on a tangent. Let's. let's no problem. Next. Uh, next screen, please. Okay. Um, I put this bromide in every talk I give because I think it's so important. It's kind of vague. It's kind of general. But someday, if not now, you'll understand it. And that is structure your deal and write your contract so that your Chinese partner believes it will make more money with you than without you. Here's what I mean by that. If you're going to buy a product, let's say a Chinese company says, I'm going to sell you these widgets for $5. And you convince them to sell you the widgets for $3. And you think you've just done a great thing. You, you haven't. And the reason you haven't is because that widget costs them, if they were selling it for $5, it probably costs them $3.50 to make. And now all of a sudden, they're selling it to you for $3. So what gives? I'll tell you what gives. The product gives. Um, either the product gives and um, they're going to send you something that's not what you ordered not made with the materials you ordered and somebody you sell it to down the line gets injured or whatever, or, and this is another trick, they're doing this deal with you not 
because they want to make money by selling to you, but because they want to get your product information so that then they can make your product and sell it to the world for a lot less than you can and thereby undercut you. So you've got to work with your Chinese partner. You've got to compromise. Um, do not crush them. Good companies, good American, good European companies, they do form a partnership with their Chinese manufacturers. They don't crush them. Next screen, please. Okay, so what kinds of contracts should you have with your Chinese manufacturer? Number one, an NNN agreement. Um, that is an agreement saying that your Chinese manufacturer cannot sell your product to someone else, cannot use your intellectual property with someone else, and cannot go directly to your customers. Um, NNN agreements make sense probably 90% of the time. They don't always make sense, but it, an example where they do is a lot of companies, um, let's say you might have a product that sells to a particular sort of market um, and you're having your Chinese factory ship your products directly to your end consumers or customers. And so they're now getting um, the addresses of your buyers. And let's say it's a subscription service or something like that. You're gonna keep selling to these same customers. Now um, there comes a time where your manufacturer might just say, hey, I'm not gonna make this anymore for you. I'm just gonna sell your product directly to your customers. I'm gonna reach out to them and give them a 25% discount because I can and you're completely cut out of the picture. That's when you need an NNN agreement. You need an NNN agreement if you've developed something really new and you want it manufactured in China. You want these Chinese companies to sign that agreement so that they can't just turn around and sell your product that you spent three years developing to everybody else. Um, product ownership agreement. If you're going to be working with a Chinese factory to develop a new product, you want it clear that you're the one who's gonna own it. And Americans just assume that they're going to own it and that's wrong. We had a company come to us once, they had been working with a Chinese factory for, I am not kidding, three and a half years developing a product. This was a pretty high-end product. And they said to us, oh, it's been great. We've been working with this company for three and a half years. Uh, we haven't, they've done everything for free. They've just been great with us. Now we want a manufacturing contract. And I said to the company, well, go back to this Chinese company and ask them if they'll sign a manufacturing contract. And they're like, well, why wouldn't they? And I go, because I don't think they think that they're manufacturing a product for you. I think they think that they've been working with you and now they're gonna make a manufacturing contract for themselves. And this US company said, no, 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 no. We're confident that they'll sign a manufacturing agreement. Please start drafting it. I said, look, we're gonna charge you a lot of money upfront for this. I don't mind doing that, but we don't wanna do that if they're not gonna sign it. Go ask them. So two weeks passed, three weeks passed, four weeks passed. Our company, the US company finally calls us back and they say that the Chinese company has told them, the manufacturer, that no, we're not your manufacturer. We're gonna let you be our US distributor for one year and if you do a good job, we'll let you continue. And we researched this issue under Chinese law, under U.S. law, and basically we came back to them and said, look, you have, you have no chance in China and you have virtually no chance in the United States either. This company owns, this Chinese company owns this product that you thought belonged to you and you spent three and a half years developing because you were never clear in writing as to who owned it.
and a product development agreement is similar. Um, if you're going to be paying a Chinese company $20,000 to develop your product, make sure that when they're done, uh, it belongs to you. Make sure that it's clear what they're supposed to do in terms of developing it. And then eventually, if, you're, if your dollar figures are high enough, you're gonna want a manufacturing agreement with that Chinese company that says very clearly what they're going to be making, what the quality should be, when the delivery date should be. China is not the United States. In the United States, the courts will infer various different terms. In China, they don't. An example I always give is in the United States, you'll see contracts saying, you know, you're gonna build me this uh, and it's gonna be of reasonable quality. China doesn't have the term reasonable quality. China is a country where you can have a t-shirt made for 25 cents and it'll go bad after two washes. Well, that might be reasonable quality for a 25 cent t-shirt. Uh, many, many years ago, um, we represented a, many companies that were having laptop bags made in China. And one of them came to us, and actually they, we, they hadn't been a client, they came to us because they had bought $3 million worth of laptop bags where the handles broke. Folks, I have, Dan has just frozen on me. Is that the case for everyone? Pardon? No, Stephen, it's, it's fine. I'm good. Okay. Um, so this company comes to us because the laptop bag handles were breaking. And we went to the Chinese factory and we said, the handles are breaking. What are you going to do about it? And their response was nothing. They bought our $3 laptop bags. If they had wanted bags with handles strong enough to actually hold a laptop, they should have paid $5 and they knew it. Um, and it's true. You can buy laptop bags from China where the handles break. So if you want to buy laptop bags where the handles don't break, you need to put that in the contract, the tensile strength, the poundage that it can hold, etc. Because if it's not in the contract, it doesn't exist. Purchase orders don't really help you much. You need it in the contract. I had another company that came to us. They were buying $600,000 of North Carolina blue shirts. They had gotten a sample. The sample was North Carolina blue. They ordered $600,000 of blue shirts. They were not North Carolina blue. They were almost worthless to them. We told them we were not interested in taking their case because they did not have a contract that specified North Carolina blue on the Pantene scale. All they had was a purchase order saying they were buying $600,000 worth of shirts. It's a different world there. It's a different world in all of Asia if you're manufacturing outside of China. Pretty much everything I've told you about China is true of Vietnam, it's true of Thailand. Their legal systems are just very different. Uh, Dan, I had a client the other day, we were talking about um, this client was ordering a toy product that uh, needed to pass a certain inspection. And the factory openly admitted that um, the they would make a sample that would pass the inspection but they would all of the other would not pass an inspection after that so and that this person would have to pay more for a toy that would pass uh where all of them would pass an inspection so basically they were admitting like hey we'll make a sample that looks exactly like it so that it'll pass the inspection for you but then when we actually fulfill the product uh, we're going to fulfill it with this inferior material that would not pass the inspection. Well, I guess that factory was at least being honest because a lot of times people get a sample and then they get the, the actual product and it doesn't pass. And a lot of times the sample will be made at another factory because the factory you're dealing with cannot actually make a product that can pass the inspection. And that's why you need a contract that's very clear about that. Another thing that we oftentimes see is, well, 
an American company will go to a Chinese factory and say, can you get us this product in 20 days? And the Chinese company will say, no problem. And then when we draft the contract and we put in their delivery will be within 20 days and every day you're late, there's a 1% um, damage assessed against you. Then the Chinese company says, we can't do it in 20 days. Because, and then our client will say, well, you told us you could do it in 20 days. And the Chinese factory says, well, we can, just not very often. And it's actually good for our clients to know that it can't be done in 20 days because if, it's not so much that the, the 20 days that's so important. They just need to know an accurate time to be able to tell their own downstream customers when they can expect the product. And you need this sort of thing in your manufacturing agreement. Okay, the next screen, please. Okay, this is um, not terribly relevant to manufacturing in China. This is relevant if you're going to if your products are going to be licensed to somebody in China to be manufactured there for sale in China. Basically. You can do that. It's becoming more and more common. Um, and those agreements are, are not terribly complicated, but you need to make sure you get paid because a lot of times what the Chinese side will do is they'll do a licensing agreement where you give them all your technology, all your knowledge, and under the agreement, they don't have to pay you um, for three months or they don't have to pay you until they sell 500,000 widgets or whatever. And a lot of times in that situation, you won't get paid. Next screen, please. Okay, so why bother with a contract? I, I put this in here because a lot of times people say, you know, they don't enforce contracts in China. First off, that's not true. Uh, according to the World Bank, uh, China's ranked, I believe, in the top 15 in terms of enforcement of contract. But there are other reasons too. One is clarity. I talked about that when I talked about the 20-day delivery versus the 30-day delivery. You think you're communicating clearly with them. You think they understand everything that, that you're saying, but they don't. And part of it is different culture, different language. The 20 versus 30-day thing, um, if you ask, can they do it in 20 days? They'll say yes, because they can. You think you're saying, can you always do it in 30 days? They think you're just saying, is it possible? That's a difference in culture. They're not lying to you. It's just the way their culture differs from ours that leads them to say yes. Um, it's just a different way of viewing things. If you put something in a contract saying 20 days, and if it's late, you have to pay this, then all of a sudden they are very clear and you get the clarity. Enforcement, that's what happens if something goes wrong, can you sue and win? Yes, you can. Do you want to have to sue in China? No. Do you want to have to sue in the United States? Even more strongly, no, because you can sue in the United States and you can win, but then you have to take your court order, your judgment over to China and they won't enforce it. So 95% of the time when we do contracts with China, we do them in Chinese and we draft them for a Chinese court. But the best reason to have a contract is prevention. If you put in your contract that if they're more than 10 days late, they have to pay you 50,000 or something like that, that will cause them to get you your product on time. One of the provisions we put in a lot of our contracts is that the Chinese manufacturer cannot subcontract out to another manufacturer because a lot of times when you have a problem, a quality problem, it's because your regular factory got so busy they had to subcontract out. Now, your regular factory is making widgets for 40 different companies. How many of them have a provision saying that they can't subcontract out? Two or three of them. Is this a great provision legally? Yeah, it's fine. 
But what makes it so great is that if you're a manufacturer in China and you're manufacturing for 40 companies and only two or three of them can possibly go after you for subcontracting out, you're not going to subcontract out those two or three. You're going to pick someone else from the 40. I call it the bike lock theory of Chinese contracts. Bike locks aren't so great, but the smart bike thief is going to pick the bike that they can pick the lock in five minutes instead of the one that takes 25. It's not that the 25-minute lock is so great. It's just great in comparison to the five-minute lock. So Dan, we did have a question about, you know, I'm sure a lot of our folks are newer and they're not used to all of these contracts and agreements and everything. And they're thinking, oh my goodness, imagine the legal bill just to get my first product started. Um, is it necessary to hire an attorney for all of these contracts? Is it something that you could do once? And then, you know, okay. as you were mentioning, I will give, this is the first time I'm going to slough off a question, and it's not because it's about legal fees. It's because I'm going to cover it at the very end. Okay, wonderful. Be better then, because then I'll prioritize. Okay, sounds okay. great. All right, next screen. Okay, what about corruption? Um, I'm not going to go too much into it other than to say that Americans think that if there's court corruption, that's like an on-off switch. If you sue on the contract, you have to lose because there's corruption. It does not work that way. It does mean that maybe your contract won't be as effective as in the United States. Maybe if in the United States, if you sued, you'd get a million dollars. If you sue in China, you get 800,000. But they still make sense, especially when you have no other choice, and most of the time you don't. Next screen, please. Okay, so what should the good contract look like? I'm going to run through this quickly. It should be in writing. It should be one language, two languages. Just make it confusing. It's okay to have two languages, but when I mean one language, there should be one official language. It should be in excruciating detail because that's what China requires. You can't just say blue shirt. You need to have the Pantene number because otherwise you don't have a good lawsuit. Um, it should also be sealed. They still do that in China with wax and all that. Okay, or a stamp really. Okay, the next screen please. All right, um, you need to be clear about where the lawsuit's gonna be and you should have a provision stating very clearly what the penalty will be if the Chinese side fails to abide by each provision you want them to abide by. Next screen, please. Okay, I talked about Chinese courts don't enforce US judgments, so you want it to be in China. Next screen, please. I've given this talk a lot in Spain. Chinese courts are technically required to enforce Spanish judgments. They don't. I always leave this in because it's a good indicator of how China does not really listen to the rest of the world in how they do things. Okay, this is the final screen. Registering your intellectual property. Patents, trademarks, copyrights, licensing agreements. Licensing agreements we talked about, you should register those. Let's talk about patents, trademarks, copyrights. Patents, if your product is something innovative, new, where you're getting a patent in the US, get a pat think about getting a patent in China also. Copyrights, if that goes to content usually, if you're um, selling something that involves like artwork, photography. If you're having that done in China, you should think about getting it copyrighted. Trademarks are what really matter. Um, and this is where I return to answer the question about what um, should you pay for? Um, if you're gonna pay for anything, probably it's trademarks because what people don't realize is that the usually the most important thing you have is your brand. And if you're making widgets in China and you're stamping them with your brand name, let's say your brand name is Bill's Widgets, um, 
once you start doing well with that, and even if you don't, somebody is probably going to register that trademark. And that somebody's probably going to be your manufacturer. And it's so, it was so common that China made it so that manufacturers are not allowed to register and hold on to the trademarks of those for whom they're manufacturing because China was embarrassed by how common that was. Well, that hasn't stopped it at all. It just means that your manufacturer in Shenzhen isn't going to register it in their name. They'll just have their cousin in Xi'an register it. Why does that matter? Because China is what's called a first to file country. And so if your manufacturer or their cousin registers bills, widgets for the class of widgets before you register it, they can stop your product from leaving China. And that happens. And so all of a sudden you've got a big shipment ready to leave China and they can seize it because you have violated their trademark. So if you do nothing else, you should register your brand name in China. The other thing that's really important is if your product is distinctive, you should not go to China and show it to five potential manufacturers or post it on Alibaba and show it to hundreds of potential manufacturers because they can steal your idea, steal your product, go off and sell it, and you have no way to stop them. Something like a manufacturing agreement, product development agreements, those become necessary based on dollars, meaning that uh, if you're buying $5,000 worth of widgets at a time, you don't need a manufacturing contract. Um, you probably need a trademark because if you're making money off those $5,000 in shipments, um, you don't want somebody to be able to seize them and shut you down in, from manufacturing in China. And it does happen. And there's, we've had, we had a big shoe company whose name I won't mention, um, they lost their trademark. Well, it wasn't ever theirs. Someone registered their trademark in China and we analyzed what they could do about it. And they chose option number one, which was to move all their manufacturing out of China to Vietnam. Um, so, I mean, it's, it can be a problem. That's the one thing you should do as quickly as you can. So let, let, me, uh, let me come in here and throw you a softball by asking, asking the same question a different way. There are a lot of people within Facebook groups, and I've posted because I'm a fan of your blog, so I know and I have uh, done my trademarks in China as well as the U.S. And I've heard a lot of people respond to me saying, oh, but I'm not selling in China. There's no reason for me to get a Chinese trademark. And I'm, that's the softball question I'm throwing to you. That is the softball question because they're wrong. It's irrelevant. Um, there were four European companies came to us because they controlled about 90% of the market for a particular product in the world. And they were making, all four of them were making this product in China. And somebody, a Chinese company that knew how to make this product, went off and registered the trademark for all four of these companies. And then basically told the factories of these companies, you better not make this product for these companies with their trade name on it, with, a tr with this brand name on it, because we own the brand name and we will seize those products. And those factories said, yeah, we're not going to. So we researched this up and down. We talked with customs officials, et cetera, et cetera. And there was no hope for these four companies. They had, so what they ended up doing is they're having the products made in China today, shipped to their respective countries where they have to pay people a lot of money to put their brand name on it once it arrives in these countries. Not only do they have to pay them a lot of money, but this product might get shipped to Holland and then get shipped to France instead of going from China directly to France. Things like that, not a good idea. 
that thank you for that softball i've i have i have seen it i've heard now i've only heard stories i don't know if it's true or not but even again in the amazon community of people taking on the chinese trademark of their own competitors and these are amazon people they're only doing sixty, seventy thousand dollars a month and yet they take on the Chinese trademark of their competitors and they turn around and, and offer to sell it. Yep. Absolutely. We had a case years ago for, we represented somebody who was in a big lawsuit. This person was extremely unhappy about having gotten cut out of a bunch of deals. And what this person did was go off and register in China the trademark of the American company he was extremely unhappy with. And we researched that too because we wondered whether there was any sort of claim somebody could bring against the American company in the United States. And the answer is no, because the American company is acting perfectly legally under Chinese law, our client was, and it's the American company's fault for not having registered their trademark. Yes, it is a great competitive tool. In fact, today I was talking with a client and we decided it did not make sense for them to register a design patent because it would be so weak, but then, we decided, no, wait, they should register it because if they don't, someone else will and then try to stop their products from leaving China based on that. And yeah. the, the somebody else was their one-on-one -on -one competitor in the United States. There is, um, uh, it's relatively easy when you file your United States trademark to file a Chinese trademark. And you can get, there's some sort of accord, I'm sure you, you're the person that knows about it, not me, where it will actually track to the United States filing date uh, when you file your trademark. So it's just good common sense to do that. Yes. And in terms of tracking, you're actually making it more complicated because um, whether it tracks or not, is usually not relevant because tracking just determines the actual date. And what the, the date that really matters is that you get your trademark into China before anyone else does. Oh, okay, how long is the usual trademark approval process? Good question. Um, it is a long, long time. It's usually 12 to 14 months, but that's in a lot of ways an irrelevant question if you're manufacturing in China, because the key is not that you have the trademark, but that you have filed your application before anybody else. If you file it before anybody else, that means no one else can file it. And that's good enough if all you're doing is manufacturing in China. If you're selling in China, it means you're going to have to wait 12 to 14 months before you can stop other people from using that trademark. Um, I was just thinking about, you know, you'd want to register your trademark um, and make sure that uh, you do that right away because if somebody else registers it and you're not first to file and then your brand does very well, then you could still be prevented from, from even registering it. it. That's exactly right. And what we tell, so we've done a lot of work with skincare companies and those can just take off very quickly on the internet and internationally. And companies will come to us and they'll say, you know, I want a trademark and I'll go in what country? And they'll go, we want a trademark everywhere in the world. And I'll say, well, that's great. That's $2 million. And they'll say, well, I can't afford it. I go, I know. Do you really want to spend $15,000 for a trademark in Afghanistan? And they go, no, of course not. So I say, well, let's focus on where you're really doing business. 
And what I tell people is the rough number I use is figure $2,500 per country. So if you're selling $8,000 a year of skincare to Romania, is it worth $2,500 to get the trademark? The answer is probably no, because the less you're selling, the less your product's on the radar, the less likely it is for anyone to come in and register your trademark. So I say, let's not bother with Romania, but that means you're going to have to monitor Romania. So if you decide you're gonna spend $100,000 marketing your product to Romania, you better come to me first so we can register your trademark there. Because once you spend that $100,000 marketing your product, somebody's gonna register your trade name and your $100,000 has just disappeared along with your trade name. Or if you know, you're seeing your sales starting to really grow in Romania, then um, you should register your trademark. And so the key is you wanna register your trademark where you're manufacturing and where you're selling. Now, strangely enough, and this is why Americans are the ones who usually do it wrong, the US, England, Australia, and Canada, they're less important because those countries are first to use. So for instance, our firm name is Harris Bricken. If somebody were to start calling themselves Harris Bricken Law Firm, we could sue them even though we've never registered that trademark in the United States. We actually have registered our trademark in China, but not in the United States because we're the first to use, we could sue them, we could win because the United States has common law trademarks, first to use trademarks. And Americans will contact us and they'll say, somebody stole my trademark in China, They've, they're holding my product for ransom at the border, we want you to sue them. And I'll say, have you registered a trademark in China? And they'll say no. And then I'll say, well, they haven't stolen your China trademark. They've registered it first. And you don't want us to sue them. You want us to negotiate with them. And let me tell you something. That does not make people happy at all. So when you're communicating with uh, Chinese suppliers, so using professional domain email addresses before you've made an order with them, like you said, you know, don't send pictures of the product you're developing or, or anything like that. You know, definitely use decoys and stuff like that. Well, what about even your communication email address? Do you want to use your domain name of your you know, brand name, or do you want to just pick a random email just to communicate with suppliers? You want to pick a random email. And I was laughing about that with a client today because I said that people will say, I was talking with this client as to whether they could delay registering their trademark until it's clear that they're actually going to go through with the product. And we decided that they could. And then I said, you know, a lot of times, I'll talk to somebody and they'll have emailed me and they'll say billswidgets at gmail.com. And then they'll say, I'll say, well, you really should register Bill's widgets. And they'll go, why? They have no idea what I'm going to put on my product. And I'll go, yes, they do. They can look at Bill's widgets. They can Google it and see your YouTube or your Kickstarter or your Amazon or whatever. They're, they're not stupid. They're in, they, I mean, there are, trademark trolls all over the world that make a lot of money. Google, uh, Apple, trademark trolls. Apple's had to pay millions to, to these people around the world. Um, so yeah, you wanna stay in stealth mode as long as possible. And Kickstarter, there are groups, companies literally in China that monitor Kickstarter and we'll take your product, your brand name, everything, and start manufacturing it. Uh, there are companies, I talked about how you don't wanna be too tough on your China supplier. Well, you go there you, and you get 10 companies that will sell you the widget for $8 and one company's gonna sell you to you for three. 
be very suspicious because there's a tactic that they might use, which is becoming more and more common, where they will say, yes, I'll make your widgets for you at $3. And then one month passes, two months pass. All of a sudden you're saying, you know, where are my widgets? And they're saying, oh, we're having all sorts of problems. And then you go online and there are your widgets with your name, et cetera. And they're just basically keeping you out of the market. I spoke with a, a friend of mine, a, a young lady who had just recently graduated from university in Guangzhou. And she was at a seminar that was in a hotel ballroom packed with other students. And they were being taught exactly these techniques. They were being taught to look at Kickstarter. They were being taught to, to go onto Facebook and talk to Amazon sellers who are coming forth with ideas. And they're saying, I'm a freight forwarder. I'm a sourcing agent. I'll take care of everything for you. And, and people who are not aware are just handing over their entire business, their ideas, their designs with no protection. And these kids are being taught to do this you know, at seminars while they're going to university. Right, right. Well, and I've had companies call me, small companies will call me up and they'll say, you know, we just met with a private equity firm yesterday or we just met with the VCs yesterday. And they kept asking us about our trademarks in China. Um, you know, can you get us one right away? It's like, no, I can't. Well, and, and then I'll say, but, you know, first thing we should do is see whether it's even available. And then I'll go online and it's not. And the VCs and the private equity companies are like, no, we're not interested anymore. Why should, I mean, you're, the value that we we're investing in is the brand name associated with your product. And it's, it's not worth nearly what we thought it was. Dan, can I take you backwards for a moment? Something you talked about earlier. Because we're talking about uh, IP protection here. And you had mentioned an NNN earlier in the talk. Uh, I've got an agent that I'm very, very happy with. I've used him since 2012. I've known his partner, their wives. Uh, they're American and Canadians. Absolutely fabulous. I love them. I still have them sign an NNN. So it's not just the factory that I have signed an NNN, also the uh, sourcing agents. Uh, and I also start off sourcing with the decoy product. You know, if I'm doing something that looks like a cow, I'll, I'll, I'll source something that looks like a French bulldog instead. So uh, I just try to be cautious across the board. And little things like a decoy product doesn't cost anything more. Right, right. And in fact, today with a client, I was saying, look, you're, the product, you're, they've got an amazing product. It's a variation on a very basic product that could be huge. And I said, before you, okay, before you reveal your exact product, we should do everything we can to narrow down the number of people you're revealing it to. Because yes, an NNN agreement is great, but if you reveal your secret to 10 companies, your risk is greater than if you reveal it to two. And so Thank I you. said to them, that your product, the cost to manufacture it is going to be very similar to the old way it was done. So you go, and those are the factories you're going to. So just cost with those factories with the old product first. And then you'll eliminate a few of them. And that's a good thing. So sort of like what you said, use a decoy. Yeah. And, and that goes back to the very, one of the very first things I talked about, which is structural protection. You got to be thinking about how you can protect yourself, especially if you can't afford the contracts and the registrations. But even if you can, I always tell people, I mean, don't rely on your lawyer for everything. Um, it, we're really, lawyers are really good with the law. We're never going to know your product or your industry as well as you do. And if we do, then you're in the wrong, you're, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Right. So I, I'm not sure how far we're along we are, but before we finish up, I would love to just have some, because there's lots of scary stories here. What are, are the positives and, and what are the, 
you know, the, the best ways for someone who's particularly starting out and not spending a lot on their product uh, to protect themselves in the most uh, cost-effective way. So I'm just throwing that out there now to make sure we do touch on that before we finish. Okay. If you're choosing the right supplier is critical even with contracts, even with registrations, but it's obviously even more important without those things. Put some time and effort into that. Um, test out your manufacturer. Yes, they can send you a good sample um, and then send you bad product, but if they send you a bad sample, uh, they can't send you good product. And if they send you a bad sample, and then say, yes, we see what we've done wrong here, and then work to fix it, and then do fix it, that's a good sign. That's almost better than somebody who sent you a good sample at the first go round. And trust your own instincts. Um, everyone likes to act like China's Mars and we're Venus, but when you get right down to it, it's business. And if, if they're telling you something that sounds funky to you, especially if they're claiming that's how it's done in China, run away. And we talked about some of the funky things like cheating on customs, um, giving you a sample to get past a certification. It's not going to get better. They're, they're dishonest. There are honest companies in China. You need to find them. It's been so wonderful. Uh, Dan, I have the slide up here about how people can contact you. I'm going to be playing this in my group as well um, and uh, on our podcast. It is just, I mean, this is just critical information that every single person out there that is wanting to get into the retailer e-commerce business needs to know. So um, please let us know the best way to contact you uh, and um, and as we just by up. email. And one thing I'll add is when it comes to legal matters, there's a lot on the internet. A lot of it's wrong. A lot of it's outdated. Steve talked a little bit about that. And so make sure you're getting good information. Well, I will tell you, I cannot, I cannot tell you how many times I have typed out ChinaLawBlog.com. So I recommend everybody read your blog. Thanks for tuning in. Join us every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for live Q&A and bonus content after the recording at SellerRoundTable.com. Sponsored by the ultimate software tool for Amazon sales and growth, SellerSEO.com and AmazingAtHome.com.